Today, it's difficult for us to imagine how a simple woman's garment, the Industrial Revolution, and labor practices could all be related. Right now, women wear t-shirts, polos, uniforms of all kinds, and dressy clothes on special occasions. But in 1911, the culture of New York City and the nation was much different. Labor laws, women's rights, and building codes all changed after a tragic disaster brought all of these different issues together. Now, 112 years later, Jeff Moss, Tyler J. Thomas, and I, Tim Coleman, will share with you the factors that led up to this disaster and how building codes and the hardware that makes life safer changed as a result. This is The Three Tumblers. The events that we are discussing occurred 112 years ago. While we have made every attempt to be as accurate as possible, some details are contradicted. We will post a list of our source material on our website, 3tumblers.com. Now, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, Part 1, The Cost of Fashion. The early 1900s were a time of change in the United States. The Industrial Revolution was well underway and members of society were changing their attitudes not only about business and manufacturing, but also about fashion and women's roles in everyday life. In contrary to previous views on their roles as being limited to work around the house, women were now being sought after to play an active role in modern businesses. With the advent of new technologies in manufacturing, as well as national advertisements of their products, clothing producers sought to cash in on this new line of profit. Gone were the days of a few mill houses producing linen and lace goods that took hours and days to make, and seamstresses and tailors to turn into clothing. Now, there were factories that could create the latest fashion trends, and they were the trends because the creators said that they were, and sell them for a fraction of the cost of old, custom-made clothes. In the early 1900s, women were becoming more active in workplaces in larger cities and also starting to be freed from the constraints of bulky, Victorian-era dresses. As such, the shirtwaist was now a popular clothing item. Prior to the introduction of the shirtwaist, Women's clothing ensembles were complicated, to say the least. Typically, the first layer was a cotton chemise, followed by stockings of wool or cotton that came above the knees. Next was a corset, which was tightly drawn closed and worn with suspenders to hold up the stockings. These were followed by a cotton corset cover to even out any lumps or seams, and was finally covered by a petticoat, which covered everything underneath. Only then was the outer dress put on. Shirtwaists were created in an effort to make the dressing process more efficient, while still maintaining the sense of decorum expected at the time. They were typically made from a lightweight fabric, sometimes silk, but mostly cotton. A forerunner of the modern-day blouse, the top was a loose fit and then tapered down reaching the waist. With a button-up front, and coupled with a much less bulky skirt, 
a short waist provided much more comfort and freedom of movement. Before the Industrial Revolution, mass production of clothing garments was unheard of. Fashion trends usually came into towns either by way of travelers or from nationally published sewing patterns. However, with factories coming into existence, along with national marketing starting to work its way into the hands of more everyday Americans across the country, more and more people could see what was now trendy. In the early 1890s, two men who were born in Russia immigrated to the United States, Isaac Harris, a tailor by trade, and a businessman by the name of Max Blank eventually met through family connections. Together, they realized that their talents could be combined to manufacture and sell mass-produced, competitively priced women's clothing. To put things in perspective, around this time, only 20% of women in the United States were gainfully employed, and a majority were young, unmarried women. For every one married woman that worked, there were three unmarried women working. And these sorts of factories were common places of employment for women simply because women lacked the opportunities of education that men had. And if they didn't already have some experience, it would be quickly learned since these factories functioned pretty much like assembly lines. You were pretty much tasked with one task and repeated it nonstop. So it didn't take long to become adept at it. Another point that I'd like to touch on is the fact that you know, clothing styles took a lot longer to come about, uh, you know, back before the Industrial Revolution, before uh, mass marketing across the country. Nowadays, you just have to get on social media and somebody will tell you what you should be wearing, according to them. Um, you know, we've seen fashions change more in the past 10 years than we have in the past 40 years, I think. Uh, so it's really interesting to read about all this uh, where manufacturers are putting out these garments and they have to advertise it to be you know cool for lack of a better term because they're putting all their time and effort and they have machines and assembly lines set up in order to produce these single garments with not very much you know difference between certain styles or or variations on their product uh, so they have to make it affordable and trendy. The spring air was still frigid as 21-year-old Sarah Brodsky and her 15-year-old sister, Ida, walked to work. Immigrating from Russia four and a half years earlier, they had found work in the textile industry, as most young women did at the time. Since the immigrants had little income, it was up to all members of the family to help provide. In 1911, immigrants from Italy, Russia, and other European countries had to seek work in order to have a place to live and put food on their tables. This required all members of the family to do their fair share and find employment no matter what gender, and with little regard to age. Girls and boys as young as 10 were regularly employed in various manufacturing jobs. As was typical for the time, women and girls were thought to be better suited 
for manufacturing clothes. Most all of these families believed that their willingness to work would pay off for a better future. Although mass production of clothing began in the mid-1880s with the Industrial Revolution, the event of electrically powered machinery really started to come about in the early 1900s, and it made it possible for companies to churn out much more product in the same amount of time and as a result, increased profits. Older pedal pump sewing machines could produce about 34 stitches per minute, while the new Singer electric machines could make 3,000 per minute. This allowed more articles of clothing to be produced each day. At 23 Washington Place in Manhattan's Greenwich Village, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company headquarters and production facility occupied the top three floors of the Ash Building. Equipped with the latest sewing machines, electric lighting, and paying $2 a day, Triangle Shirtwaist was the most desirable employer in the garment manufacturing industry in New York City. The term desirable was relative to the era and practices of the time, however, with hours being 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Friday and short Saturdays of 7 a.m to between 3 and 4 p.m., workers got paid on average $2 per day. Taking into account that there were no overtime laws then, and inflation from 1911 to 2023, workers were grossing pay of $388 per week, or $4.97 per hour in today's money. While that rate sounds so low, even by today's standards, the women were actually paid far less. Every time a needle broke, or there was a missed stitch, or even one stitch was considered to be off or crooked, they were docked from their daily pay. The people making these calls were floor supervisors who constantly walked up and down the crowded aisles of machines and workers, just looking for mistakes. Loose or out-of-place stitches could cost several cents each, and a broken needle could cost nearly half a day's wage. Coupled with substandard plumbing, having to earn a break during the day, even just to use the restroom such as they were, and a dirty and dusty environment made this place a living hell. I mean, this is sort of all the, the things that I've heard over the years about working in those types of places, and it was low-skilled manual labor, or at least they were they were paid at a low-skill wage to do more intricate things. Um, I know, you know, my grandfather started working when he was 11 to help support his family. His father owned a tailor shop, and when his father passed away, his mother ran it. So he grew up, you know, working at a bowling alley and other places, you know, from a very young age, and then working in his family's shop as well. Um, you know, we have some of the tools and stuff from back then, a big pair of tailor shears that are easily 100 years old at this point. Um, so, you know, everybody, you know, in those days, a lot of children had to work to help, you know, late 20s, or early 30s, or 40s, you know, during the war and all that, you know, it was pretty much all hands on deck. Um, but yeah, I, you know, remembering the play Rags that was about this, you know, that the working conditions were just atrocious by any standard. Yeah, we're about to talk more about this, but 
Max and Isaac basically took advantage of their workers because they knew the workers could be quickly replaced and they knew that the women desperately needed the work to help with their families. Those two factors made a lot of the women there compliant with these practices simply because they needed the money. Uh, we still see this today, sadly. I mean, this kind of reminds me of what we see online with Amazon factories. And what is even more sad, as Tim said, is that this was a desirable place to work, which means a lot of other places were even worse than what we just heard about. Yeah, I mean, this is where we got the term sweatshop. You're in there working your fingers to the bone. You're not in any good environmental conditions. Uh, you're just working nonstop. And is a result of the desire for mass production and increased profits. Um, you know, we complain today about having to work eight hours, 40 hours a week. That's nothing compared to what, you know, these women and girls had to go through. And, you know, we've all had the, the complaint about our supervisors constantly looking over our shoulder. They literally were looking over their shoulders every single minute of the day. Um, you know, we joke now that we're worked to death. For these girls, that became reality. Max Blank and Isaac Harris didn't see any problems at all with these working conditions. In fact, they sought to make them even more restrictive by showing their distrust for the workers. Since competition was fierce in the day with Triangle selling their mainline product at less than 65 cents each, and the recent worker strikes throughout the city threatening the bottom dollar, Blank and Harris took extreme measures to ensure they did not lose any money. In the mornings when workers arrived, they rode the large freight elevators up to the production areas on the 8th and 9th floors where they filed into the crowded rows of sewing machines, cutting tables, pressing machines, and assembly tables. Both the 8th and 9th floors had eight 4-foot wide, 40-inch tall tables with a total of 240 sewing machines on each table. Dust and lint hung heavily in the air. Even though sunlight shone through the large windows, none were open to allow the air to circulate. If workers needed to use the restroom, permission had to be given by one of the supervisors. Even the Washington Place exit was to be kept locked due to the mistrust towards the workers for fear of stealing. The neo-Renaissance style ash building was designed to have retail shops on the ground floor and industry on the nine floors above. An almost perfect square of stone and brick, it was like a compass with each corner at north, south, east, and west. Originally planned to have three stairways serving all floors, a design compromise was made that eliminated one stairway and replaced it with an outside fire escape on the north side of the building. The only way people could get to it were from two large windows along the north wall. 
Blank and Harris had nice offices on the 10th floor, although the ceilings were high and windows large on the production floors. Their floor, which also housed shipping and storage, had larger windows and higher ceilings. You know, we always think that the bosses always have the nice offices, and this is pretty much where it came from. You know, they're sitting up on top of their factory. They've got great view of Washington Square Park. Uh, they've got plenty of fresh air because they can open up some of their windows. Uh, probably isn't as hot or as cold up there as the production floor, depending on the time of the year. Um, you know, in the building, just laid out in your typical New York City grid, uh, right there on the edge of the park. It still overlooks the park today. Yeah, and I'll repeat what you said earlier. This was considered a desirable place to work for at the time, which is crazy. I don't know if this was considered normal for the times or two people with paranoid personality disorders were running it, or maybe a combination of both, but it, it's just absurd the levels they went to to protect their business. It really seems like the ivory tower personified. Rules for thee and not for me. As long as they're safe or their family's safe, they don't care about the workers. Safety measures, like we've said in the last thing, safety measures be damned. You know, they're going to build the school cheaper, they're going to make more production, whatever cases you can't imagine that dust is going to be floating through the air in their offices i mean i realized that shipping was also located on the 10th floor but they're not going to have a messy smelly oily place to work and tim just slipped in a big life safety detail at the end there Three stairways originally planned for all floors, but one was eliminated, and the compromise was an outside fire escape. So keep that in mind as we go through this series, because it's a very big detail. Sarah and Ida, after having made a five and a half mile walk from their home at 205 East 99th Street that morning, and nearing the end of their short, nine-hour day, were ready to go home and spend time with their family. At approximately 4.40 p.m., a fire begins in a scrap bin filled with fabric, rags, and other discards. It hadn't been emptied in almost two months and contained hundreds of pounds of material. Within minutes, this fire spreads to fabrics and other materials nearby. It erupted into an inferno that consumed the 8th, 9th, and eventually 10th floors of the ash building. One stairway was blocked completely by fire and falling debris. The other stairway was only accessible after running through smoke and flame. While the elevators held hope for the nearly 500 people in those floors, 146 would not survive, including Sarah and Ida. Next time on The Three Tumblers. Link fence inside and stuff, you don't see a lot of those. 
Maybe in some of the big old buildings downtown, but... Equally painfully stupid and reckless, perhaps more so, were the locked exits here. And the guard has this big ring of huge keys. Those are basically the keys we're talking about right now. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. For source materials, see our website, 3tumblers.com. Get this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a 3Tumblers production. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.